good morning. Uh, let me start by thanking uh, everybody that's helped to make this possible. I'm sorry that I'm not with you today, uh, but I want to thank uh, Donnie for recording this and taking the time to do that, for Carl helping out with the announcements, Larry taking care of our, uh, uh, our, our missions moment, and uh, Jubal for all the work that he's doing, confession and praise, and, and just p picking up the slack for where I'm not able to, so I appreciate that. We're going to invite you, if you would, please, to take your copy of the Scriptures and open them to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 19 this morning. Genesis chapter 3. This is the first of our Advent messages. Uh, we'll be preaching Advent messages today as well as for the next three weeks. And uh, we hope and pray that these messages will be in a blessing and encouragement to you as you prepare your hearts uh, for uh, the coming of our Lord uh, in Bethlehem. So Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're going to ask if you would please to stand with us in honor of God's Word as we read this morning, Genesis chapter 3, and uh, we'll be reading verses 3, I'm sorry, verses 8 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. And they heard, that's Adam and Eve, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of, you, out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for this time and grateful, Father, for your work of grace in our life. Lord, we ask for this uh, unusual, uh, uh, out-of-the-normal circumstance that we're doing today, Lord. We, we know that you're still able to bless and use your word. And Father, we pray that you would do so today. Speak to our hearts. Father, help us to be open and receptive to what you, you desire for us. And Lord, we just ask that you would bless this time and use it for your glory. Lord, be with those who are uh, going through a loss at this time. We pray for Joyce and her family. Lord, that you would just comfort and strengthen them. Lord, for those that we have that are, uh, are recovering, Lord, we pray, continue to pray for George, Lord, and for others that are, are dealing with some, some uh, difficult physical issues. And Lord, we just ask now you would uh, bless each one here today. Thank you for your goodness and graciousness to us. For those that are out of town, Lord, we pray you bring them back safely. And we thank you for this opportunity of blessing. Be with those who will be teaching the children. 
Father, we pray that you would give them ears to hear as well as ourselves. For we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. Amen. Okay, we're going to dismiss our children at this time. This past Tuesday evening, uh, Sammy and I went to Lowe's. Uh, there was a particular little tool set that they had on sale, and I wanted to get it. And uh, so we went out Tuesday evening and went to Lowe's. And as we w were leaving Lowe's and coming back, it was about 8.30 uh, in the evening. And as we were heading back and coming uh, north on 287, all of a sudden, the storm blows through. Uh, the wind just it just picks up and the, and, and the trees are swaying and moving and, and the rain is torrential and, and everybody's slowing down and uh, their speed limit's dropping by about 20 miles per hour. And, and when we finally arrived at the house, I looked over and told Sammy, I said, well, you've made it through your first Texas storm. And uh, he laughed and, and I laughed and we enjoyed that time. And However, I didn't know until Wednesday morning when Gary came by to, to uh, clean the church, uh, the severity of the storm that we had encountered. I, I was not aware about the tornado that had touched down there on, uh, I think it was Cooper and Pioneer, or Arkansas, Cooper and Arkansas, and the, and the uh, burger box there. And, and so it, it really was a, a, a major storm. Now, storms evoke a myriad of emotions. Uh, some people are dreadfully afraid of storms. Others are in awe of storms. Personally, I'm mesmerized by storms. I, I, I love storms. Uh, I like the sights. Uh, as you see the lightning, as we were coming back from, from Lowe's on, uh, on Tuesday, I mean, there was, it was just a lightning show. I mean, the skies were just lighting up uh, uh, moment by moment by moment. I, I'm mesmerized by the sounds, uh, it, it, hearing, the, hearing the thunder and the, and the rumble and, the, and, the, and the, the wind blowing through the trees and, 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 and bending the trees and, and, the, and the smells uh, as the rain comes through. This, uh, I just love everything. I'm mesmerized about thunderstorms. And, and also the thing, every time I see a, thunder, a thunderstorm, it's always a reminder to me of the awesome power of God and the impotency of humanity. Uh, it, I mean, all it takes is a storm for us to really realize just how fragile and how, uh, how, how we lack power in so many things. Well, our text takes place in, in what may have been the first storm experienced by humanity, and we'll get into that in a moment. Yet, in the midst of this awesome, powerful display of God's hatred and God's judgment of sin is a gracious promise of deliverance and hope. Our focus, as we've already stated, our focus this Advent season is the promised seed. Uh, that's the title of our, our series over these next four weeks. And, and, and we begin this four-week series in Genesis chapter 3 and God's stormy pronouncement of the promised seed. As we unpack this text this morning, we're going to examine that I've used this phrase before. And it's one of the phrases I just love. Uh, like, I, like, uh, I like conundrum. Uh, I, I like the phrase Sitzenleben. Uh, it just, it's German. It just simply means the, the circumstances in life. Let's take the setting, uh, the setting of life, what is going on. But we're going to look at the Sitzenleben and the structure of this text this morning. We're going to see the serpent and the seed. And then we're also we're going to close out, uh, and, and this is the crux of, of this section, we're going to look at this, uh, sy uh, synchronous, uh, the synchronous strike 
uh, how, how this strike happens and, and occurs. I'm sorry, synchronous. Good grief, Greg. The synchronous strike, okay? The synchronous strike. Uh, we're going to look at how these, these things, uh, the this, this, this strike, uh, it, it comes together. So we'll be looking at that this morning. So let's begin by, by looking at the sits in Laban and the structure. And to do that, it, it, we have to go back to the, to the section before what we read this morning in verses 1 through 7. Now, we're not going to take the time to read it, but you can read it or scan it while we're uh, going through it. But basically, what the setting and life here of what happens in verses 8 down through verse 19 uh, is the fall of humanity. You pretty much know the story of Adam and Eve, and, and the, uh, the Satan comes, or the snake comes, and, and tempts her, and uh, she eats of the fruit. Uh, she gives it to Adam, he eats, and it plunges humanity uh, in, into, into sin. Uh, there were two trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil and, and the tree of life. Uh, they were allowed to eat of the tree of life. They were not allowed to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so so uh, most of you are familiar or all of you are probably familiar with that. But in verses 1 through 7, these verses synthesize the nature of temptation and sin. And first of all, we see, and there's a lot, I really wish we had the time as I was studying this and I was preparing for it. We could spend a couple weeks just on these first seven verses. And Genesis is always a good book. I mean, it's the book of beginnings, not just the beginning of the universe as we know it, but the beginning of sin, the beginning of redemption. There's so many beginnings there in the book of Genesis. But we see in this summarization or this synthesizing of temptation and sin, we see the tempter in verse Verses 1 and 2, the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden. And so here we find the tempter, he uses language to confuse and distort. Prior to that, God uses language to bring everything that is good into existence. And, 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 and we, see, uh, 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 we see the fact of uh, uh, the serpent talking here. He's the next person to talk in the order here of, of how Genesis is structured. And he uses his words to distort and confuse. And then in verses 3 through 5, we see the temptation. And basically one of the ways to, to summarize the temptation is the questioning of God's integrity. And the big lie... The big lie that is in verses 3 through 5, there in, in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, look, at, look at it with me, if you will. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And the big lie is simply this, that there is no punishment for disobedience. That's the big lie. That I can disobey God and there's no ramifications. That I can disobey God and... I'll be okay. And that's the big lie. That's the big lie. It's the big lie that we still believe today. When we think that we can, we can dabble in sin or dive deeply into sin and that somehow, some way, it's not going to have any effect upon us. And that's the big lie. But not only do we see the temptation, the question of God's integrity and the big lie... Then we see the choice. And, and, and temptation always, always appeals to our senses. It always appeals to our senses. Look at verse 6. Because in verse 6 we see the choice. And in the Hebrew text, it's four verbs that just rapidly follow one another. 
Look, look you, you can see even as we read the text, but then we'll go back and, and emphasize it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. After the commentary, after we see what's going on in, in the woman's, uh, woman's heart, in the woman's mind, she sees that the tree is good for food. It's a delight to her eyes uh, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Once she makes the choice, her emotions kick in. And action takes place. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. Boom, 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 boom. Those four verbs just follow right after that. She took and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Boom, boom, boom. And that's what temptation does. Uh, we are deceived through words. We are confused. Uh, we begin thinking the big lie that we can delve into this and and nothing's going to happen to us. And once we take the bait, our emotions are in control, and we just, we're, we're like, a, uh, we're, we're like a, a, a cow going to the slaughter, a bull going to the slaughter. We're just, we're just going and not looking back. Then finally is the consequence in verse 7. In verse consequ- the consequence speaks of alienation, and the eyes of both were opened, and that they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we have the, the alienation. Adam and Eve, uh, up to that time, there was, uh, there was no shame. Up to that time, uh, it was a time of innocence. Uh, just like, you know, little kids. I mean, you can see it. I mean, when they're one, even maybe up to two, they run around with no clothes on, don't think a thing about it. But you see, uh, they reach a certain age, and all of a sudden they know. They know. But up to that age, there's that, there's that sense of innocence to where they, they simply don't know. Adam and Eve lost that. And part of the fact of them sowing fig leaves to cover themselves is an indicator of their alienation and of their separation, not only with God, but their alienation and their separation from one another. So that's the setting there. That, that's what's taking place. Uh, that's the sitting Laban. Uh, that, that's what's happening. Verse 8 also is kind of a hinge verse. It, it gives us uh, what happens, what God does after this rebellion takes place. But it also serves as opening up for us verses 9 through 19, which are a, a chiastic structure that we'll talk about in just a second. Verse 8 is a storm theophany. Uh, if you look at verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And most translations translate something similar to this. Uh, and, and the picture is one of kind of like God doing a, 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 a leisurely stroll. Uh, it's the afternoon. You've got a breeze blowing. And he's kind of waiting for Adam and Eve to come along so uh, they can join him on his stroll. And it's a time of, of fellowship. And that certainly is a legitimate translation uh, of this verse. But there's been recent studies, and, 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 uh, and by recent I mean over the past 70, 80 years, uh, and, and you have these recent studies that talk about, first of all, the word walking there, really a better understanding or uh, maybe a, a, better, a better nuance of that word would be the idea of moving about uh, in the sense that God is moving about. Uh, they, they heard the sound of the Lord God moving about. 
So, so we get this sound of, of moving about. Uh, the, the next thing uh, that, that the text talks about is in the cool of the day. In the cool of the day. And, and, and the cool of the day, that word cool is translated, it's the word that translated wind. And so the, 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 the people that are translating, is, is most translators do, there's, there's translation and there's also interpretation. Uh, because you can't translate everything all the time word for word. And, and so they had this idea of the wind blowing and so this understanding of the cool of the day. But the word also, again, has the idea of wind. Wind of the day. But again, that word day that's translated day, there's been uh, some, some studies by, by people who are, uh, very, uh, uh, who are scholars, not only in Hebrew, but, but the uh, ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, they talk about the Akkadian word that, that's, that's associated with that Hebrew word. And, and the idea of that is the idea of a storm. It's the idea of a storm. And, 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 and the evidence is pretty convincing. That, and I'm convinced of it. Uh, the evidence is pretty convincing of the fact that what we have going on here is, is, is a storm taking place. That God is moving about, uh, God is moving about in the wind of the storm. He's moving about in the wind of the storm. And so when, if, if you look at the text that way, and then you look, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God. Psalms talks about God's sound being this thunderous roar. As God is, as God is avenging uh, His righteousness. As, as God is uh, avenging uh, His His his, uh, his holiness. You have this thunderous roar, and, and if that's a correct understanding, then what we have going on in verse eight, God is pictured as coming in a thunderous roar, in a powerful windstorm, to confront the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And I really think, again, if you, if you take the verse that way, let's look at it again. And they heard the sound, the thunderous roar of the Lord God moving about in the garden in the wind of the storm. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And when you think about what's just happened, how Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, I really think... Uh, that that understanding of verse 8 makes makes the best sense. That here you have God coming, Adam and Eve of sin, and God responds with this, think think of uh, uh, a violent, uh, uh, fierce thunderstorm. And think sometimes how scary that can be. And no wonder Adam and Eve are scared. They've never encountered God in this way before. And so you have that taking place. So God is pictured, I believe, God is pictured in a thunderous roar, in a powerful windstorm to confront the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And now you get to verse 9. And beginning in verse 9, you have a chiastic structure. And this structure is important because it helps us to understand what the thrust of this text is about. Look, look at the structure. In verses 9 through 12, you have the man is questioned. God asks a rhetorical question. He starts off and he, and he, he comes there in verse 9. He says, where are you? Now, probably a better understanding of that, of that question or, or the, nuance, the, the nuance of that question is this. Why are you hiding? It's not that God doesn't know where he's at. Uh, it's not that God's trying to look around to figure out where he's at. 
But now picture, picture this, this, this thunderous roar. And, and, and those trees are moving in the wind. And all that's taking place. And they hear the voice of God. And God questions Adam. And he says, why are you hiding? Why are you hiding? Adam gives him this answer. And God follows up with two. God, God, God has two follow-up questions. Kind of like, you know, the, when, when they question the president. You know, everybody wants a follow-up question. Well, here, God gets two follow-up questions. And, and he says, who told you? You were naked. And have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? That which I commanded you not to eat, did you eat it? And so you have these four verses where the man is questioned. And then, of course, he ends in the familiar line that, that all of us uh, know. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. In other words, he's saying this gift, that what Adam had originally recognized as a gift given to him from now, he says, you gave me a bad gift. You know, I, I, got, I, got, the, I got the Christmas tie, you know. Uh, that, that's what you gave me. You gave me a Christmas tie. You know, you gave me a pair of socks. You know, I, I got really a bad gift here. This, this gift isn't one I bargained for. And so it ends that way. Then we'll find that the woman is questioned. So the man is questioned, verses 9 through 12. The woman is questioned, verse 13. And it just covers one verse. One verse, which kind of tells you who God is holding responsible for this. One, 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 one verse, one question, no follow-ups. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Or we might put it to really kind of get the import of the, of the nuance. What in the world have you done? What in the world have you done? He asked her one question. She answers. Verses 14 through 15 then God addresses the serpent. But notice there's no question. He doesn't ask the serpent any questions. He immediately pronounces upon the serpent a curse. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, curse it. Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then in verses 16, one verse, the woman is sentenced. God pronounces his judgment upon the woman. It's one verse. Verses 17 through 19, three verses, you have that the man is sentenced. And God pronounces his judgment upon the man. So you look at this chiasm and it's how it's structured. The man is questioned, the man is sentenced. The woman is questioned, the woman is sentenced. The man's asked three questions. The woman's asked one. The, man has, uh, the man's sentence covers three verses. The woman's sentence covers one verse, just as her, her question covered one verse. And in the middle, the serpent is cursed. And so the major point of this chiasm is found in verse 15 that we just read. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words... Here's the point. There will be a long and perpetual conflict between the seed. It's, it's translated in the ESV offspring, but it's the word for, and that's a legitimate translation, but the word is seed, the word zira. The Hebrew word is zira. So there will be a long and perpetual conflict between the seed, the zira of the serpent, and the zira of the woman. And this conflict will end with the seed of the woman delivering a crushing blow 
after receiving a crippling blow. Again, the conflict ends when the seed of the woman delivers a crushing blow after receiving a crippling blow. Now, that raises the question, who are the serpent and the seed? Well, let's look at the serpent. The serpent, first of all, is a literal snake. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It's a snake. It's a literal snake. However, a lot of times we want to spend stuff on what the Scriptures aren't addressing. Moses' primary concern here is not the origin, uh, the origin of evil in or the nature of the snake. You know, as the snake, has, God talks about him, his curses him, he's going to crawl on his belly. So does that mean that the snake prior to that was walking? That's not even Moses' concern. Moses isn't interested in that. That's not, that's not the thrust of what Moses is, 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 is talking about. Moses' primary concern is not, the, it's, not, it's not the origin of evil in or the nature of the snake, but rather what the snake said. That's the thrust. It's not about whether the snake walked, the snake didn't walk. Uh, why is the snake talking? Uh, it, it, that, that's not, the thrust is the fact of what the snake said. Now, as people that lived in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, snakes were a symbol of both protection as well as evil. A snake could be a symbol of protection. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, it was a, in some ancient Near Eastern cultures. In fact, in, in Egypt, snakes were both. Uh, there were some snakes were uh, were protectors. Uh, other snakes were evil, and so th- that that doesn't really help us a, a whole lot. In this context, well, here's what we do know: in this context, Moses is presenting the snake as an anti-god. Now they don't know this. But we know this from Revelation 12, 9, that who, is, who empowered this snake, who possessed this snake, and who controlled this snake is Satan himself. Let, let me read the text to you real quick in uh, Revelation 12 and, and verse 9. It says, And the great dragon uh, was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So, Again, the book of Revelation identifies him as that ancient serpent. Now, again, all we've got here is, again, we're trying, I want us to think, as we make this way through, through our, I want us to think and place ourselves in the time period of these first hearers. So for the original hearer, the identity of the snake and his seed would be shrouded. It would be shrouded. There would be some, some, some fogginess there as to, as to who exactly is this snake. But what they would understand, what they would under, they, they might know that that, that, that snake is, 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 is a, 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 an animal that's being empowered and possessed by Satan. But what they would understand is that it is representative of all the forces of evil or anything or anyone that is opposed to God. They would have understood that. That part would have been clear to them. So... That, that, at, at the minimum, that's their understanding of, of who the identity of the snake is. It, it's all, all that which is opposed to God. It's anti-God. Okay? 
Well, what about the seed or the identity of the seed of the woman? What would the original reader have concluded? Well, we already told you uh, is the fact that uh, the word there is zerah. And zerah is a singular. It's singular, but it also can be used as a collective singular. We use collective singulars. For example, the word sheep. If I said I'm going outside to take care of the sheep, I could be referring to one sheep, or I could be referring to a whole flock of sheep. We don't say sheeps, sheepus, you know, sheeps. You know, we say sheep. And so that's the same way with this word here. It can be used, uh, uh, zerah can be used uh, uh, to, uh, uh, for, uh, can refer to an immediate descendant. It can refer to a distant offspring. Or it can refer to a large group of descendants. And in the Hebrew scriptures, many times that word is used for, it's referring to, to all three. All three. So it can refer to an immediate descendant. It can refer to a distant offspring, or it can refer to a large group of descendants. What's the point? What's the point that the author is trying to make here? The point is simply this, that the fall of humanity would be reversed by a descendant of humanity. The seed of the woman is going to deal with the seed of the snake. The seed of the woman is going to deal with the seed of the snake. The fall of humanity, the fall of humanity would be reversed by a descendant of humanity. First, uh, these these uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern Jews, as they are hearing this from Moses, as Moses has written this, that's 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 we we can for sure take that away without having trying to read anything into the text without uh, our knowledge of the, uh, the New Testament, reading back into it. If we were just sitting there and this is, the, this is the first time that we're hearing these words, there's no other scriptures to refer to, this is what we're thinking, that, a, that the fall of humanity is going to be reversed by a descendant of humanity. So, how would this occur? Well, the text tells us. It occurs by, by the means of a synchronous strike. A synchronous strike. Look at verse 15 again. Look at the last part of verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, depending upon what translation you have, uh, it talks about crushing the head and bruising the heel. Uh, you, it might have the word strike in there. And that's really probably a good uh, a way we think about a snake striking. And, and uh, the, the, the words are the same. The words are the same there. And so the, 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 the word strike conveys this idea. And what you have going on here is a conflict or battle of struggle, affliction, and suffering. You have this battle of... Str- there, there's go- the fall of humanity is going to be reversed by a descendant of humanity. But in that reversal, there is going to be this perpetual conflict this perpetual battle of struggle, affliction, and suffering. The battle here, in this, in the, as we get to uh, verse 15, this battle is between the respective seeds, and it appears to be individuals. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his uh, heel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring 
and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, it's between the respective seeds and it appears to be individuals. What also is interesting from this verse is that the strikes are simultaneous. You could translate it this way. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Uh, his heel. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. And the, the emphasis is upon happening at the same time. You could paraphrase it this way. As he attacks your head, you will attack his heel. How many... I've watched all the Rocky films. I mean, I'm a Rocky nut. I like the Rocky films. I like the messages behind them. And then what also fascinates me is that Sylvester Sloan wrote most of them, if not all of them. But if you, if you, if you all remember Rocky three. Y'all remember Rocky Three? That's when he's, he's uh, kind of gotten uh, fat and lazy as the champ, and he loses it, and Apollo Creed comes back and, and, and starts training him. Rocky's a southpaw. He, he leads with his left, and, and uh, uh, southpaws are, have, have some particular uh, flaws and fallacies, and so uh, Apollo starts training him so he can go back and, and, and take the title from, from Clubber Lane. And at the very end, after Rocky's won it, at the very end, him and Apollo are just, you know, they're kind of, they're, they're at, they're kind of sparring around and talking, hey, you know, you're in shape now, and, and, and uh, we, we really need to have, I, I could beat you, you could beat me, and again, you probably remember it. And so here they are, and they're, so they're kind of just kind of trash-talking each other and, and popping around in the ring, and uh, Apollo goes ding-ding, and they ring the bell, and they're still, as, as fighters will do, kind of rope-a-doping and trying to figure each other out. And you remember the last scene of the movie. The last scene of the movie, Rocky starts coming up like this, and he's about that far away from Apollo's face. And Apollo comes down like this, and he's about that far away from Apollo's face, and, uh, from Rocky's face, and it freezes. It stops right there. You don't know what happened. They're, 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 they're feeling each other out. They're looking each other over, and exactly at the same time, whew, they go swinging. They go swinging. That's the idea of this verse right here. That at the same time that the seed of the woman is crushing the head, striking the head of the seed of the serpent, the seed of the serpent is striking the heel of the seed of the woman. As the seed of the woman delivers a crushing blow to the seed of the serpent, the seed of the serpent will simultaneously deliver a crippling blow to the seed of the of the woman. That's the text. That's what they're understanding. And so as we leave Genesis 3, as we walk away now from verse 19 and verse 20 on, talks about, we see God's grace and God's mercy. Uh, he, he makes clothes. He clothes the man and the woman. But as, as we close out Genesis 3, humanity and all of creation has dramatically and drastically changed for the worse. Intimate fellowship has been replaced with alienation and separation. Shame and guilt have replaced innocence. And sin and death now reign. In the aftermath of humanity's rebellion, 
God makes a stormy announcement. It is a promise of a coming seed who will deliver humanity and crush the forces of evil. Who is he? When will he come? And how how will he do it? These are the questions for the next three coming uh, next next uh, 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 coming three weeks. In the meantime, during this first week of Advent, we wait for the promised seed, a human being who will deliver humanity. That's 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 what this text is about. A human being will deliver. Humanity. You can put it this way. Our deliverer is someone like us. Our deliverer is someone like us. May God help us as we wait, wait for the promised seed. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that is ours in Christ. For the hope and promise of a seed at man's darkest hour, at humanity's initial act of rebellion, you still reach down in mercy and in grace. In the, in the midst of your stormy announcement, as you righteously and correctly come, and the thunderous roar of God is heard in the wind of the storm. And Adam and Eve are confronted, the man and woman are confronted about their sin. The serpent is cursed. And Father, within that is also the promise. The promise. This time we don't know who it is, we don't know when. We don't know how. But what we do know, and what we can think about this week and rejoice is we long, longingly await for the coming of the promised seed, is that the one who will call the one who will make this happen, the one who will crush the head of the seed of the serpent, is someone like us. Humanity be delivered by someone like us. Father, we thank you for that promise. We thank you for that hope. And we thank you that it points us to a manger. We pray your blessings now upon your people. For we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, as is our custom, we don't have an altar call, but we do have an invitation. Part of Advent messages are to cause us to hope, to long for the coming of Jesus Christ. And this text begins by helping us to see. We don't know who, we don't know when, we don't know how. But God has made a promise that humanity is going to be delivered by someone that's human. By someone that's human. We want to take some time and give a moment of silence and 
give you an opportunity to, to talk with the Lord, whatever is going on in your heart. Our God is a God who delivers. I'm not sure what you're going through right now, what may be going on in your life right now, but God has promised us a deliverer. And that deliverer is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He not only delivers us from sin, the power and penalty of sin, but He also delivers us from ourselves. So we're going to take just a moment, a time of silence, and then we'll close out our service. Let's go to the Lord in a time of silence. Father, thank you again for this time, this opportunity to look into your word. Father, we pray that you would bless it to our hearing and, Lord, that it might find good soil. Lord, that we might respond correctly and properly to the word of God today. If there's someone here, Father, that doesn't know Christ, I pray that you show them their need. Lord, for others that are struggling, Lord, I pray that you help us to see that the one who came this promised seed has crushed, has crushed the head, the seed of the serpent. So, Father, we ask that you would uh, apply these truths to our lives. Lord, that you would, we're grateful for the fact that the serpent's head has been crushed. And Lord, we ask that you would cause us to think about it this week and rejoice as we prepare our hearts for the celebration of the coming of your Son. That millennia, several millennia before it ever happened, you gave this promise. Pray your blessings upon your people. Continue to strengthen them this week. And Lord, we pray you bring us back to your house. And uh, Lord, we're this next week and we're thankful for it. We pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit.